So if you have a, uh, a Bible, stand with me if you will. I'm going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're doing the entire chapter today, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and then I'll read it out loud, and after I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, and you'll say, thanks be to God. So starting chapter 9, verse 1. Now, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast ab- about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go ahead to you and arrange in advance the gift that you have promised, so it may be ready as, w- as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work, as it is written. He has distributed freely, he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgiving thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from the confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the generosity, your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would be with us now as we um, study chapter 9. And more than anything, Lord, I pray that Jesus Christ would be supreme in our affections as we look at this. That as we think about what it means to be a believer, specifically in the realm of giving, Lord, that we would not want to ever base our giving on anything else besides the gospel. That we wouldn't feel guilty, but instead our, our, our generosity would overflow to you um, with uh, an amazing desire to want to live out um, as worship for you because of what you've done for us on the cross. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going through 2 Corinthians, and as I said before, 2 Corinthians really has kind of three sections, and we're in that middle section. Chapters 1 through 7, chapters 8 and 9, chapters 10 through 13. So we've looked at chapters 1 through 7, and that's where Paul is really trying to uh, talk about the reconciliation that he and the Corinthians need to have. Um, can you turn up the house lights a little bit more? It's just a little dark in here. I want to be able to see y'all better. And y'all can see your Bible better. No one will sleep now. So chapters, or chapters 1 through 7 is the reconciliation that needs to happen uh, between them. So remember, 2 Corinthians, Corinthians is really the fourth letter that Paul had written. We only have letter 2 and 4. That's our first and second. So in letter 4, uh, 
he references that third letter, which he calls the severe letter. And in that severe letter, he gave them a pretty firm rebuke because they had let false teachers come in and, and really trash Paul's name and proclaim a different gospel. And so in letter four, he's saying, listen, I'm writing this letter before I come, but before I come, I'm writing it because I'm wanting to reconcile us. I'm wanting us to uh, get back to where it used to be, where we used to you know, you used to love Paul the pastor, and, and I, I, I always have deep affections for you. And so as you go through the first seven chapters, you'll see that there's a reconciliation that needs to happen. There's also, uh, they were feeling pretty down, and they needed to be comforted, etc. So as we get to all that, um, that's chapters 1 through 7. Paul talks about the gospel, talks about a lot of things in chapters 1 through 7. Now, as we get into chapter 8, there's a turn because Paul is on a missionary journey, and he's heading back to Jerusalem. So the missionary journey started, he's going around to all the, the different cities where he'd been planted churches, and he's heading back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, is filled with people who are Jewish, uh, and they're, they're very poor, and they're, they're destitute, and they have many, many needs. And so Paul's doing on this mission, missionary journey, visiting all these Gentile cities, and while he's going, he's wanting to collect an offering so that he can take all this money back from these wealthy Gentiles and take it back to these poor destitute Jews and give it to them so that their lives will improve and they'll be able to eat and they'll be able to... Um, rejoice that the Gentiles love them enough to be able to do it. And so there's, there's also a ministry of reconciliation, not just that he's preaching vertically, but also horizontally, that even Jews and Gentiles would be reconciled, and Jews would be seriously pumped up and excited to see how much the Gentiles love them, because they're all one in Christ. And so in chapters 8 and 9, which is what we're looking at today, Paul's talking about that. Now, if you remember, uh, Chris preached last week, um, and in the middle of these two giving sermons that I'm doing, chapter 8 on giving and chapter 9 on giving, pre Chris preached the one in the middle where he's talking about the, the sovereignty of God, or as Chris used it, the lordly grace of God to arrange it all and, uh, through Titus. And so that's what we looked at last week, um, is the lordly grace of God and how he arranged it all. But if you remember, uh, I said two weeks ago, hey, I'm preaching a sermon on giving, and I'm going to do it again. So I'm glad to see that you remembered that and you came anyway. So uh, if you remember, um, chapter 8 verse 9, chapter 8, verse 9, is for us the gospel and why we would give. So we, the reason why we give, if, whenever we give, and if you go to any church and you hear them say something like, give today, not out of guilt, but based on the gospel, give today patterned after the gospel. And that just means, think about God the Father. When God the Father gave Jesus, what way did he give Jesus to us? Reluctantly, begrudgingly, or joyously and generously. Like when think about God the Father gave Jesus to come down here, live on earth, to go to the cross. He gave Jesus to us excited. Like he, he loved the fact that he would get to give his son to save us. And so we pattern our giving after the gospel. In the same way that God the Father gave the son, we give joyously and generously. So that's what 8-9 is telling us uh, in the previous time that even though Jesus lowered himself and became poor, that it actually made us rich, and so we should pattern our giving after the same way. So chapter 8, verse 9, we're looking at chapter 9, but I'm just using this as a reference point to jump in. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though yet he was rich, he was in heaven, the highest praises were given to him, being bestowed upon him, he's the king of all kings forever and ever, and he deserves all the glory he's getting in heaven. He was rich, he became poor, as in, the incarnation happened. He became man. He lowered himself and, and came to earth to live the perfect life, etc. So for yet for your sake he was rich. He became poor so that by 
his poverty so that by his incarnation and his perfect obedience to the will of God the Father, all the way to the cross, dying for our sins, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, 1 John 1.10. And now, when that happens, we're forgiven. We are now given his righteousness, as it says, his, his righteousness is imputed to us, counted to us, reckoned to be and to our account. And now we are in Christ. And so he says, he became poor so that by his poverty, his obedience, we might become rich. Not, not monetarily, spiritually. That we are now totally forgiven in Christ. And so we always base our giving on the gospel, which brings us into chapter 9. So Paul is going to tell us here uh, the results of the spiritual disciplines of generosity. Two weeks ago, I tried to convince you of what spiritual generosity, uh, why you should be a, a, a generous giver, etc. And now we're going to look at, okay, if you buy in, if you're like, okay, yes, here's some results. Now, I will grant to you that number two out of the four isn't necessarily a result, but it can be. It can be. Um, but the other three for sure are. All right, so here we go. Uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Now, 1 through 5 is just an introduction. It's just an introduction. We get to the, the meat of the sermon when we get to verse 6. But basically, what's going on here, this is, this is a continuation, really, of the sermon that Chris preached last week, verses 1 through 5, um, and a, a, a continuation of the same thought of lordly grace. Uh, but it gives us, as I said, an introduction into our generation, and our, 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 not our section here on generosity. So in verses 1 through 5, um, Paul's reminding the Corinthians. He's saying, hey, Corinthians, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Corinthians, remember, you, you said you were going to give. So I, I'm on my missionary journey. I'm coming through Corinth. Uh, and when I come through Corinth, you said you were going to give. And then I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. I just want to remind you that you said you were going to give. And you, were, you promised this gift to us. You can see that at the very end of verse 5, you have promised. So it may be ready as a willing gift, not an exaction. So they've promised it. He's just reminding them. Uh, you promised it, and when I come through, I want to remind you that you promised it and that you should give. And remember, the Macedonians, wow, I mean, those, are, th- those people don't have near as much money as you, and they overflowed with generosity up in Macedonia. So down here in Achaia, down, you guys in Corinth, you guys are supposed to, since you have money, really, really step up here and be like the Macedonians. You want to do that, right? And they're like, yeah, we want to do that. So they promised this gift that they would give. And he let them know that when he comes through, he, he would really love it if they had the gift in order and ready to give it to Paul. Uh, and he said, I might even bring some of the Macedonians with me. And if I bring some of the Macedonians with me, and I've already bragged to the Macedonians about how you're going to give if I brought them down here and then you didn't give, well, then I would be humiliated. And as a matter of fact, if you look at Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 4, he did bring some of the Macedonians with him whenever he came. And so he doesn't want to be humiliated whenever he, go, whenever he comes through there. And so he says, nevertheless, I know you're going to do it. I, b- I believe in you. You promised it. I don't want to be humiliated, and I want you to do it. And when you do it, I don't want you to do it begrudgingly. I want you to do it willingly. So that's, that's, that's verses 1 through 5, just reminding him. And then that gets to the point to verse 6 where he says, the point is this. So now he's telling us, here's the point, which brings us to the sermon today of giving us four results of practicing the spiritual discipline. Result number one, you can see it right there in verse 6. Um, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So point number one, you go ahead and put it up. If you want to see 
big things happen in your life for God. Be in the habit of being a generous giver. Just think about that. Don't you want to see that in your life? No, 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 Fudd, forget it. I don't want to see anything happen big in my life for God. I just want to have, you know, a ho-hum kind of cruise right in there, give me a three out of ten kind of life for God. That's what I want. No one would say that, right? We all would actually say, yes, I, as a Christian, I do deeply desire to see big things happen in my life for God. I, I really want to see a lot of people get saved. I really want to see a lot of people become worshipers. I really want to see a lot of people transform their life away from worldliness and say yes to Jesus. If they're a Christian, stop being so worldly and really change their life. We all would say, yes, I really want to see that. Well, Paul tells us, if you really want to see that happen in your life, then you should be in the habit of being a really generous giver. And this means specifically financially with your money. So he begins telling us this by quoting a proverb. So in, in Proverbs uh, 11, 24, and 25, I have my little thing here. Here's what it says. Proverbs 11, 24, and 25. One gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. So if somebody gives freely, they get even richer. If someone withholds what he should give, he suffers from want. He doesn't actually get any more. Whoever brings blessing will actually be enriched and, with the one, and the one who waters himself will only just be watered. In other words, if you want to actually have more in God's economy... If you want to actually have more, you got to be a giver. If you only take care of yourself, you will not have more. In God's economy, that's how it works. And so Paul quotes Psalm, I'm sorry, Proverbs 11, 24 and 25. And so look at it. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Just think about it yourself. So if you have a garden or if you have a struggling yard like mine and cannot get grass to grow. Uh, What do you do? Do you just throw a few seeds out there and say, I really hope this makes the grass grow? No, I mean, you go to the store and you buy the big Mama Jamma 70 thing and you put it in there and you just seed the mess out of your yard or you just put a bunch of seed in the garden. I'm going to put more than's needed and and hopefully something's going to happen. Hopefully we're going to get something. Same idea. If if you're going to give... You don't just say, well, I just, just give a little bit. In the same way that the farmer is going to just throw out as much seed as he possibly can, in the same way, you want to throw out as much money as you possibly can and see what the Lord's going to do. Whoever sows financially, sparingly, reaps financially. Whoever sows bountifully, literally throws out as much money as they possibly can, reaps bountifully. And so we want to not be stingy with our seed, you never should be stingy with your seed. After you aerate it, I mean, I put out as much as I possibly can. It doesn't work for some reason. I can't grow grass in my yard. They still track red clay all in my house, but I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying to get grass in the, ha- in the yard. But, uh, but nevertheless, whenever we do that, the point is that we have to sow as much as we can. This is the principle he's saying. So uh, the sow-reap principle tells us how much. There is no certain amount then. There's no certain amount, but... The principle is sow bountifully. Don't sow sparingly. The goal here is not legalistic tabulation. 
The goal is generosity. Generosity. When we live this way, God provides an opportunity for us to live and to be able to give generously. And so we need to take a little sidestep and make sure we understand when I say, you sow bountifully, God will enrich your life. This is not at all to be understood as the health, wealth, prosperity gospel that they try to proclaim so that you can get rich more. God's not promising here that if you'll just be generous, then you get rich. That's not at all what I'm saying. If you serve God, the old, an old English proverb says, if you serve God for money just for yourself, then you'll serve the devil for even better wages. So it's not about making yourself rich. You're not giving to other people so you can get rich. You're giving to other people and God will enrich you so that you can give more. The point is not to just get yours and then buy an airplane or whatever, right? The point is to, if God does enrich you, now you have more to give more. The, the ever-increasing cycle of wanting to be a giver is the whole point. And the moment that you stop doing that, then you're not going to be enriched by God anymore. God enriches us so that we give more. So it is not health, wealth, prosperity. Instead, Paul's trying to tell us if we practice the sowing reaping principle, we will reap bountifully and God gives us more resources so that we can use our resources more for God. This word bountifully here, um, this word bountifully, we sow bountifully, it's the Greek word eulogia, where we get our English word eulogy, meaning blessing. So he's actually, Paul is literally saying, so bountifully because you are, when you're doing it, you're literally sowing blessings to other people. And God causes them to actually reap blessings. So this bountifully actually has the word blessing within it. As John MacArthur says, generous givers will reap generous blessings from God, while those who hold back selfishly, fearing loss, will forfeit any gain. And so we want to sow bountifully so that we can reap the blessings bountifully. So, um, am I saying that you have to be wealthy in order to do, see big things happen to God? No, I'm not. We've already seen that last week from Macedonia. So, this isn't wait until I'm finally financially prosperous, then I'm going to start obeying the sow reap pr principle. No, that's not it at all. You've missed the whole point. It's whatever you have so bountifully. So if, if you think about it, I think I said this two weeks ago, whenever the old widow dropped in her last two copper coins into the offering basket when Jesus is watching, was she rich? No, she had like half a penny. Did she sow bountifully? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so um, if you want to see principle one, or the first result is if you want to see big things happen in your life for God, be in the habit of being a generous giver. I wrote it this way because I, I want us to like, actually say, it's a, I want it to, us to be able to uh, not be able to say, well, I don't want that. It's, I think it's impossible for us if we're really walking with Christ to say, no, excuse me from the big things. I just want the small things. That's all I need. No, nobody should ever be saying that. So the principle laid out here is um, so bountifully, reap bountifully. And hey, I would even add time, not just financially, I would add time. So bountifully with your time for the Lord and not just yourself, and then you'll reap bountifully. So that's the first thing. The first result is um, that if you want to see big things happen in your life for God, be in the habit 
of being a generous giver. Now, here's the second one. I, I know this isn't necessarily a result, but it, it kind of is. It kind of is. You'll see it. All right. Verse 7, look at it. Each one must give. Um, that must give is not in the Greek. It's just supplied. Each one, as he has decided, is basically how it reads in the Greek. Each one, as he has decided in his heart. The must give is not in the Greek. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. So you have a serious decision, right? You are making it of your own volition. It's your decision. No one in any way should ever be forcing it upon you. Uh, you don't give out of guilt. You give out of the gospel. The, the, Paul's repeating this theme over and over in chapter 8. You make the decision. But then he says, for God loves a cheerful giver. Number two. You can put it up. All right, I'll read it. It's not going to be up there. Generous giving should not be done under compulsion, but with a cheerful attitude. Now, that's, that's more of a statement. Hey, when you give, you should have a cheerful attitude, just so you know. It's kind of like written like that, right? But it, the result is, there is a result, and it's this. You actually have a good attitude. That's a good result. Like, I, I want to have a good attitude whenever I give. I don't want to have a sorry begrudging attitude. I want to have a really good attitude. So generous giving should not be done under compulsion. So in verse 7, each one, as, as he says, must give as he has decided. This is the only time this word's used in the entire Bible. It means predetermined. This is the point of you thought of it beforehand. It's not forced. It's totally voluntary. You should decide and then you should have must give. Uh, each one must give. As I said, it's not in the Greek, but Paul is doing everything possible as to this must. If, if it was in the Greek, must give, Paul's like, you must give. Then you can be like, Paul's really forcing them. It's not in the Greek. Paul's doing everything he can to not come off as, as the kind of guy that's trying to force them to give, but instead it be their own volition. And then Paul again quotes the Old Testament here. This time it's not the Proverbs, it's Deuteronomy. He quotes Deuteronomy 15.10. Deuteronomy 15, 10, he said, You shall give to him freely, and your heart will not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and all that you undertake. What uh, Paul is driving at by quoting Deuteronomy 15, 10, and really what God's driving at through the Scriptures, what he's driving at is what is crucial is it's the attitude. When you give to him freely, your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, for this is what your Lord blesses you in all your work and all you undertake, not begrudging. What the point is that he's driving at, what's crucial is the attitude when you give. Not so much the amount, but the attitude. The attitude. So the second result is generous giving should not be done under compulsion, but with a cheerful attitude. And the result is that you actually have a good attitude. What he wants is a great attitude, or attitude, or how we feel when we give is huge. Now, I know emotions can be deceiving. Don't trust your emotions always, etc., etc. But here, Paul is saying that you should have a cheerful attitude whenever you give. He wants you to be, God, as it says in verse 7, God loves a cheerful, hilarious in the Greek giver, where we have our, our, our word hilarious. It just means happy, super, super happy. Um, we give, in other words, because we get to, not because we have to. We're excited. We actually get to give. 
Uh, one commentator, Garland, he says it this way, God who knows and appraises our hearts values only those gifts that come as a free expression of the deepest parts of our souls. Gifts given under some external compulsion will always be half-hearted at best. That is why the amount makes no difference if it is given with a glad heart. But if it is given resentfully with a gloomy countenance, that attitude cancels any merit the gift might have had, no matter its amount. So we want to push our minds and hearts that when we give, that we're not giving begrudgingly, but instead we're giving with a cheerful attitude. Note here, the ones that God loves. Watch what it says. Don't miss this, right? Each one must give as he has decided his own heart, not reluctantly on the compulsion. God loves a, cheer, God loves a cheerful giver. And I've, I've kind of talked about, hey, you need to have a cheerful giver, but don't miss the God loves a cheerful giver. That's pretty huge. Who are the ones that God loves? The cheerful givers. God loves cheerful givers. God has affections for the ones that are cheerful and happy and joyous in their attitude when they're given. God has an overflowing, deep love for those particular people. I know God loves everyone. I'm not saying that he doesn't. But he's saying explicitly, God loves cheerful givers. Don't you want that in your life? Don't you want whenever you give that you are not doing it begrudging? You're like, oh, yeah. Like, but I'm so excited that I get to do this. So God loves a cheerful giver, a joyous attitude. And and remember this, God doesn't need our money. I mean, he has everything, right? It's not like God is just like, man, I just can't do anything unless you just hook me up. I really need for you to do it and be happy about it. But I really needed to do it. I just can't meet this need over here. That's... That's not what's going on at all. God doesn't need our money. So if you think that God really needs your money, you probably won't give cheerfully. God doesn't need your money. He wants you to love giving because he gave you Jesus to die for you on the cross. And you just can't get over that. You just can't get over the fact that your sins are forgiven. And so based on the gospel, and now your heart loves what Christ has done for you, you want to give cheerfully you want to give generously. That's the second result. Next result comes in 8 through 10. Don't put it up yet. Look at 8. Um, and so it says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times. Make sure you see all the alls there, right? There, there's four. And he is doing this on purpose. He's trying to just be as all-encompassing as he can. Notice it. And God is able to make all grace, and uh, as Chris said, pointed out to us last week, this word grace, charis in the Greek, is, is uh, repeated over and over in chapters 8 and 9. He's trying to help us see that giving is a grace of God that's been given to us, and we can be a grace to other people, and we should give grace back to God, thanks back to God, because he does this. Grace is repeating over and over, but God is able to make all grace abound to you, So that having all sufficiency, that's huge, in all things, at all times, you may be able to abound in all or every good work. So, point three. 
is this. You can put it up. The third result. Generous giving increases God's blessing on you so that you can give more. Now, I referenced that a little bit in verse 1, but here's where it is. Notice what he says. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so he abounds to you with grace, so that having all sufficiency, you never have a lack of resources. All sufficiency is no lack of resources. To give, no lack of resources to take care of yourself. As a matter of fact, all sufficiency means you're taken care of, and now you're given more so that you can take care of more. And you take all sufficiency in all things. There's not, a, there's not a thing that you don't need. And then he says, at all times. There's not a point where you don't have this all sufficiency given to you so that you can abound in every good work. This is how Paul states it for us in verses 8 through 10. As it is written, he's going to um, quote the Bible again. And then he goes to verse 10 and explains it. So let's, let's look and see how Paul, Paul's line of thinking. God makes it so that you can have all the money you need. Don't miss it. This, here's, here's what he's saying. God makes it so that you can have all the money you need to do all the work that God's calling you to do and have plenty to live on afterwards. That's what God's able to do. God is able to do that. God makes it so that you have all the money you need to do all the ministry you need to, of giving away. And you'll be able to do that afterwards. You'll still be able to live afterwards. How can he do that? How can he do that? Well, he says it right there in verse 8. Our God, and God is able. That's how. God is able. Don't ever, ever miss out on that profoundly huge statement that's written. So God is able. Even referenced back in Daniel. God is able. God is able. That's how he can do it. So what does it mean? It means that now that you understand any reluctance, when we hear that, all sufficiency, all things at all times and all grace to every good work. If you hear that and you're like, I still don't know if I want to give. Still not sure. Here's what this means. Any reluctance now for us to sow bountifully and sow generously reflects then a refusal in trust that God is actually all sufficient and all gracious. That's what it reflects. Any refusal to give shows that you or I, if we're like, I, don't, I don't, still don't want to give, it shows that we have a lack of trust in God, that he actually is able to be all-sufficient and all-gracious. Because that's, this verse is very all-encompassing. It's wanting us to understand that God is able to make everything work for us. If we, want, if we decide in our heart we want to give, he will bless us so that we can do it. And he keeps giving it to us. Don't miss the all times. It precludes the idea that we can only give when we're prospering. At all times, it, it eliminates the idea that only when you're prospering you can able to be able to give. God wants us to be generous in all times like the Macedonians who were not prospering at the time. And then it says in verse 8, abound in every good work. And this is the final goal of the four alls. That we is pointing us to that God wants us to abound in every good work. Abound in every good work. We know in Ephesians 2.10 that every single Christian actually has good works predestined for them. If they would just walk in them. God has literally predestined you to do good works. Ephesians 2.10. Go read it. That's what it says. You just got to walk in them. Now if you're wanting to know what do these good works look like. I can show you. There's a bunch of places. right? I'll just take you to one particular place. The book of James. Um, well, two places. But... One place is in the book of James, and I'll show you two verses. This is just, I'm picking something random. I could pick 1,000 verses out of the New Testament, but here's two. 
here's two. If you want to know what every good work looks like tangibly, lots of places you could go. But here's, here's two places in James. James 1.27, help widows and orphans in their afflictions. There's one. You want to know how to sow bountifully? Help widows and orphans in their afflictions. Here's the second one. James 2.14-17. Basically, the gist of it is, if you have a brother and sister in Christ in your church family that needs to eat or have clothes, you should give them that. That's basically what it says. If there's a brother and sister in Christ you know that's hungry and does not have food, you should, you should help them. That's just two places. You could go all over the New Testament if you're wanting to know what does it mean to abound in every good work. Um, but that's two. But we're called to sow bountifully, and as we do that, we abound in every good work. We have gospel-centered good works. Remember, those good works we're doing are not earning salvation. They're giving evidence that we have been saved. This is how Garland says it. Every good work does not earn grace. Grace already received generates good work. Generates good work. And now Paul backs up what he said in verse 8 by quoting the Old Testament again. This time it's Psalm 112 verse 9. Psalm 112 verse 9 says, He has distributed freely. Now, don't miss this, okay? This is really cool. This is really cool. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is saying, you are doing this. And he's, talking, he's putting the Corinthians in the subject of the sentence. And he's saying, Corinthians, you do this. If you look at it again, as it is written, he has distributed freely. He's given to, he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And he's, he's saying, that's what's true of you, Corinthians. You have distributed freely. You have given to the poor. But he's quoting Psalm 112, verse 9. And in Psalm 12, verse 9, he's not talking about people. He's actually talking about God. So in Psalm 112, verse 9, it says this. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. So in Psalm 112, the subject of the sentence is God. In 2 Corinthians 9, 9, 9, yeah, 9, 9, it's the Corinthians. The subject is the Corinthians. What's Paul doing there? What's Paul doing there? It's pretty awesome what he's doing there. He's backing up the truth with Psalm 112.9, and what he's doing is this. He's saying that whenever we give, we're acting just like God. Here's what God did, and here's what's true of him. And now you're doing it, and whenever you give 2 Corinthians, you're acting just like God. You're being like God. You're not, you're not God. You're being like God. You're, you're doing what you're called to be in Christ. Become more like Jesus. Become more sanctified. We, when we give, we're like him. When we give, we are more Christ-like, not less Christ-like. When we give, that we are becoming more and more sanctified. And he blesses us when, when we do that so that we can give more. He blesses us financially with resources, not so you're like, oh, thanks for my gift, Jesus. That's awesome. I'm going to throw a big party for me and buy a, 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 an airplane. That's not it, right? If he enriches you more, it's because he said, I trust you now to take that money and sow it even more bountifully for the kingdom. That's the point. And so that's what he's saying here. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply. Here it is. Why do you keep saying he's going to give you more, Fud? Here it is. Watch. He who supplies seed to the sower, that's God, who gives us the seed to sow bountifully and bread for food, will supply, and what does it say after that? And multiply. 
That means he blesses you back so that you can use that then to bless more people. Not, not fatten our pockets, right? But to give it to other people. And so he reiterates the psalm in verses 8 through 9. He kind of reiterates the sow and reap principle <clears throat> and telling us that we know abound in every good work. And as he goes back to the farming principle in verse 10, he's saying if you sow bountifully, when you yield the crop, you're going to get a lot of crop for you, and you're going to get the, even the seed in the crop. You know, whenever you, whenever you actually, if you don't know this maybe, maybe you're not a huge gardener, but when you, you, you're not scared when you're throwing all the seed out as a farmer. You're like, I'm using all my seed, and I'm going to get a bunch of food with this, but when I get a bunch of food with this, the seeds are back in the thing that, when I do it, seeds come back. So I'm going to get the seeds back to be able to do this again. It always comes back in the crop. I get the food, and I get the seeds back in the food. And that's how it works. So don't be scared to sow bountifully with the Lord, because you're going to reap bountifully back with the food and the seed, and the seed's the thing you throw back out there again. That's basically what Paul's trying to help us see. That's how God does. That's how God does it. Therefore, sow bountifully with your money. God's going to use it so you can bless others and so you can sow more into others. And he says in verse 11, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will provide... Wait, I'm, I'm sorry. Verse 10. Um, he who supplies... I'm getting ahead of myself. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the, will supply and multiply... Your seed for sowing. So he gives you your seed for sowing, not for storing up for yourself, but for sowing again and increase the harvest of your righteousness. When he says the harvest of your righteousness, he's not saying that you're becoming more righteous by giving. That's already given to you in the cross. Paul clearly, from all of his writings, does not think that we can earn righteousness or earn salvation by being generous. He knows that our righteousness is from Christ. He said that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we, we, we get our righteousness only from Christ, not from ourselves. But uh, one, one commentator says it this way, the righteousness that we become through Christ's sacrificial death works itself out in our sacrificial generosity of others. A lack of generosity, a lack of generosity in the Christian calls into question whether or not we have actually truly received the righteousness of God. That's what it's saying. No giving, probably not righteous in the first place, meaning not a believer. What we do with our money, therefore, becomes, in a sense, a litmus test of our relationship with God. It really shows what we treasure, Jesus or not. So generous giving increases God's blessing on you to give more. And I'll just say it again. Don't you want to see that in your life? Don't we really actually want to see like, holy moly, God just keeps blessing the socks off me. And I get this opportunity to actually keep giving more to other people. It's so awesome. Don't you want that? I'm assuming you do. Martin Luther sums up this whole truth well. This is how he says it. I have had many things in my hands that I lost. The things I placed in God's hands I still possess. I've had many things in my hands that I've lost. The things that I've placed in God's hands I still possess. Put your finances in God's hands. That's the point. That's the third result. Fourth result is this. This is awesome. You can go ahead and put it up. I'm so pumped about this one. Generous giving literally results in making worshipers of God. 
there are people that aren't worshipers of God yet. And that if we give, we, we so bountifully, people cross over, as Colossians chapter 1 says, from death, from, the, uh, from death into life. They're transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. That's, that's how Colossians 1 says it. We, by sowing bountifully, and when we do that, we proclaim the gospel, of course, can actually see people become worshipers of God and people that are believers increase their thanksgiving into God. That's what he's saying here. Um, so if you're ready to give, if you're ready to be a generous giver, God's going to make more worshipers of himself that are filled with thanksgiving. Don't, don't you want to see that? Yes! So bad, right? So bad. So verse 11a, verse 11a is a restatement of the point above. You will produce thanks, or you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. We've already talked about that. And here's what he says. Here's, here's where he starts making the point in verse 11b, which through us will produce thanksgiving, which through us will, so I'm going to be enriched. And then when I'm enriched by the Lord in order to give through us, Whenever I give to it, what does it produce in the people that, I, that I'm sowing into? Thanksgiving to God. Understand what's being said here, so we make sure we got it. Through us, through our generous giving, this actually produces thankfulness in the hearts of the people that we're blessing. It produces worship in their hearts. That's absolutely amazing. Now, why does this happen? Why does this happen? He tells us in verse 12, for, for, he's making the argument, he's going to help us understand, for, the ministry of this service, when you see ministry of this service, uh, you may have heard me say this lots and lots of times, there's two Greek words for worship, uh, proskuneo and laturo. Proskuneo is like, come forward, bow, bow down, worship, kiss the king. Laturo is like, go out to do a lifestyle of worship. That's this whole word, ministry of service, is laturo. It's the going out lifestyle worship. And so he says it right here. For, so when you see in verse 12, for ministry of this service, that's lifestyle worship. For your lifestyle worship of giving of money is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. So you're not only meeting that physical need of that person, which is awesome. They were hungry, and now they have food, and they're not going to die but something happened in their heart that they actually are going to give worship to God. You've done two things. Whenever you do a lifestyle of worship of generous giving, you actually do two things in the heart of that person. They eat, which is good, right? They need to live, and they become an, an unbelievable thanksgiver or worshiper to God. That's what he's saying happens in verse 12. So how is it in verse 11 when he says it actually produces thankfulness in the heart? Is because whenever you do it, your money, your physical giving actually creates in them, uh, satisfies their hunger or their need or whatever it is, and whenever that's done, it actually causes them to worship. Your money is meeting their need, but it also makes thanksgiving happen in their heart. So when you give, you're doing something great by meeting their, their, their physical need, but you're actually doing something even better besides meeting their physical need, which is causing their heart to be a worshiper of God. That's what we want. Let me meet your need if you're going to be a you're going to become a worshiper of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to meet it anyway. But knowing that you will give glory to God, 
Well, that's what I wanted. That's what I want. I want to see uh, your thankfulness redound to the glory of God. That's what I want to see. And he's telling us that's what happens. Verse 13, verse 13, by their approval of this service or the proof of the ministry. So uh, basically what he's saying is that you're proving that you're a believer when you do this. Now, remember, take this step back with me because Paul is actually talking to the Corinthians who are going to be, who are Gentiles, who are going to be giving money, that, and they're kind of rich, to the Jews uh, who are in Jerusalem. And so remember, that's the, that's the scenario. That's the context of what we're looking at here. So let's make sure we read it in that, in that manner. Verse 13, by their approval, that's the, the, the Jews in Jerusalem when you give, it proves to them that you really are a Christian. That's the, that's the kind of the deeper way that the Greek is trying to say it. They, the Jews, will glorify God because of your submission, because you decided to give. Um, because of your submission that comes from the confession of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ has claimed your soul and you are a believer and you confess Jesus, you're going to give. And when you do that, they're going to see that. Uh, and it says, and the generosity of your contribution for them and all the others. Well, and and whenever, they, whenever you finally do that, what's going to happen in their heart, verse 14, is that they're going to long for you and they're going to pray for you because they can't get over the fact that you're so nice that you would give them because of the surpassing grace upon you. So that's, that's what he's saying. This proof of ministry is that the Jewish Christians, when they receive this gift, it's going to prove to them that you're a believer. And so uh, notice how they become worshipers. It's because of your confession of Jesus and because of your giving. Because you confess the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're going to become, when they hear the gospel, maybe they'll become worshipers, but also as you meet their need, it's going to cause glory to be given to God because they're so, um, because you gave generously, the generosity of your contribution for them, because you gave generously, they're also going to have thankfulness in their hearts to God. So the Jerusalem believers will do this thing for you, Corinthians. They will long for you, and they will pray for you. That's an awesome thing. Like, that whole thing that's happening is amazing. The Lord uses you to bless them, so now that their physical need is met, they become a worshiper of God, and now they know that you're a Christian, and now they will continually long to know you, long to pray for you, and they will be connected back with you as well. This is the whole thing that Paul's saying is going to happen. I mean, this is, this is awesome. Generous gift-giving the point that Paul is trying to make here is generous gift-giving breaks down barriers like Jews and Gentiles. You want to break down a barrier, be a generous gift-giver. B- generous gift-giving breaks down the barriers, and it unites people in only a way that God can do. This is what Paul, I mean, there was animosity between Jews and Gentiles. Read Second, or, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 2, of starting at verse 11. You know, we got one in 10. Go to verse 11 and keep reading. I mean, it, it talks about this barrier being broken down between Jew, Jews and Gentiles because of Christ. And after that, you want to break down a barrier with your neighbor. Be a generous gift giver. It's happened with me. Whenever I lived uh, at, at a different house, um, one day we were, uh, th- there was a guy that was across the street, um, and he was always seemingly, I don't know why, uh, but he was always mad at me. I don't, one day when we first moved in, um, he was across the street and his driveway was, you know, it came out into the road, right? And I was on my side of the road and when we first got there, I, I put my moving truck straight in, in front of my door 
Uh, and so I put my moving truck there, and they said, hey, hey, Fudd, your neighbor's here. And I was like, oh, great. He must want to meet me. And so I go out there to meet him, and I'm like, hey, man, how you doing? He goes, you need to move your truck. I'm, Hi, nice to meet you, too. Um, what? And he said, it was on my side of the road, not his side, not in front of his driveway, on my side of the road. And he said, if I wanted to back out of my driveway, uh, your truck would be in my way. And I was thinking, well, you actually have a lane, but okay. He goes, yeah, so you need to move your moving truck right now. So if I need to back out of my driveway, I've got plenty of road to back up. And I'm like, okay. He was kind of scary, and I'm, you know, not. And so it was like, okay, I'll, I'll move my moving truck, and I'll carry my, my, my stuff really far to my front door for you. All right, so I, I, like your pastor, you want to be a good Christ-like person, move your truck, your day one, fine. And so after that, I just felt like he was always mad at me, and I, I always try to be nice. Hey, how you doing? Fine. Okay, so... Anyway, so we saw, Christy one day saw, uh, I think that his wife's pregnant. I think that his wife's pregnant. And I was like, really? She said, yeah, so let's get the community group to, because every time somebody would come to community group, um, if they were there for the first time, they didn't know. They would park in front of our house. Uh, and so I, he'd eventually come knock on the door. Uh, this person needs to move their car. Uh, if I want to back out of the driveway, I can't get out. Again, on my side of the road, not his. Uh, but every time somebody new came to community group, so eventually everybody just knew, just park on the other side. Uh, and so we had a running joke, like, don't park here, and the new people will, and he'll get mad. Uh, and so, so eventually, uh, Christy noticed that his wife was pregnant. She said, what we should do as a community group is all get a bunch of baby clothes together and take it over to him and just bless him with baby clothes and see if that makes it so he's, so he's not uh, mean anymore. So, all right, let's do that. So we get a bunch of stuff. We take it over to him. Uh, and I, I don't know if I took it or if Christy took it. I can't remember. But they weren't there. I, I don't know what happened. And so one day, uh, I pull into the driveway, and he's in his yard, and he looks over at me, and he goes, what are you trying to do? And I'm like, oh, no, he's going to kill me. He's mad at me because we gave him clothes, and he, he's offended by it. And so he stormed, he literally, I'm not kidding, y'all. This is what he did. He stormed at me like this. All the way from his yard, all the way up to me, and I'm just standing there, and I'm like, Christy, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. And he gets right up to me, and then he stops, and he goes, that was so nice, and gave me a big hug. And I was like, oh, praise the Lord. He didn't kill me. I mean, I was scared to death. I thought I was dead that day. Christy was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm going to run in the house and call 911. Um, but he stops. He gives me this huge hug and tells me, no one's ever done anything like not that, nice like that for me before. And then we were friends. I could park wherever I wanted. It was awesome. <laughs> Giving gifts breaks down barriers. It really does. Giving gifts unites people that you never, ever thought could, you could be united. We were great friends after that. We hung out all the time. We talked all the time. We even got a chance to talk about Jesus and the gospel, etc. He always called me Rev. Rev, move your car. Okay, Rev. It's not even my car, but I'll, I'll move it. Um, so anyway, the point is that, that generous gift giving breaks down barriers. There was a barrier between Jews and Gentiles, and he knows this is going to happen. Uh, and so... Paul, in his wisdom, is not just hitting up the rich people to help the poor, but he's also trying to make sure those who are Gentiles and Jews can see that they're actually united under Christ. And so, um, be a generous gift giver. Uni and do your best to unite people under Christ. Remember, we're uniting people under Christ. So, this is, this is the last thing that we have. And then he finishes with, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So he ties it all the way back to Jesus. Thanks, by the way, is charis, grace. Uh, the theme running all the way through chapters 8 and 9. Charis be to God. Blessings be unto God, or grace be back unto God for his inexpressible gift. And he's not talking about money. 
He's talking about Christ. We're going to come back to that in a second. So here's the question that we're all like wondering. Did the Corinthians actually do it? Right? <laughs> did they actually do it? Well, as I've already said, Paul did go to Corinth after he wrote this letter. Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, tells us that he went to Corinth. So Acts chapter 20 says... Verses 1 through 3, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for his disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece, and there he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So he went to Greece. This is where Corinth is. So he went there. He did go back. And so what did they do? Uh, well, we know that he was there for three months. It just told us he, he was there for three months, and then he got out of there again. So while he was there for three months, uh, most church theology historians tell us for those three months he was there, he wrote Romans. Uh, while he was there in Greece, in Corinth, he wrote Romans. And so as he's writing Romans, uh, the book of Romans, which, by the way, is just awesome, uh, he finishes the book of Romans with this. In Romans Chapter 15, he talks about the gift. He talks about the gift that he's trying to collect for uh, Jerusalem. This is what he says in Romans chapter 25, verse, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 15, verse 25. At present, so he's, he's been in Corinth for three months, and he's saying, I'm finishing the book of Rome. He's talking to Rome. He's like, this is what I want to do, Rome. But first, I can't come to you, Rome. I really bad want to come to you. Uh, but you're like the opposite direction right now. I got to go back over to Jerusalem. Then I can come back over to you. So he's writing to Rome, telling him how much he loves him. He just, he just wrote a systematic theology basically in three months. He's pretty awesome. I can't do that. Uh, verse 25. At present, Rome, however, I'm not coming to you. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints for... Macedonia, we already know that they've given, and Achaia, this is where Corinth is, they're in the region of Achaia. Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and, and indeed they, they owe it to them, for if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service to them in material blessings. So yes, they did do it. Not only did they do it, Paul writes in, in Romans 15, they were pleased to do it. Yes, Paul, we are so excited to give this money to you to take over to Jerusalem to bless the, the poor uh, Jewish people who are there, who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. So not only did they do it, they were actually pleased to do it. The Corinthians did follow through with this gift that they promised in 2 Corinthians 9.4. Amen to that, right? They, they did it, which means, which means um, remember, starting in chapters 1 through 7, how kind of far they seemingly were away from walking with Christ. And then by the time Paul got there, he stayed with them three months, and they did. No matter where you are, no matter how far you feel away from Christ, or even just walking with Christ, or even financially being um, obedient to what God calls us to, you can certainly do it. They did it, you can do it. We all can do it. So to conclude, he literally says, thanks be or grace be unto God. Thanks to be for God for his inexpressible gift. The gift, of course, is the Lord Jesus. This is the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus, the gift of Jesus that's been given to us that actually inspires us to give gifts generously. Jesus is better than money. God's gift is better than your gift. So don't prize your gift, which is money, more than God's gift, which is Jesus. We prize Jesus 
above anything else. We prize Jesus above any money we have. We don't love money. We love Jesus. Money is just our means to be able to bless others, to get them to love Jesus. Money is used to get people to love Christ and advance the gospel. That's what it's for. Love Christ, advance the gospel. And so let's conclude with the same way that we finished two weeks ago. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace, again, the theme, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was God's grace to us. That though he was rich and he could have stayed there, he had absolutely no obligation to leave heaven and come die for us. He was totally rich and totally uh, able to stay there. But though he was rich, yet for our sake, your sake, he became poor. He did it for us. Philippians 2, when he talks about the incarnation, says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to held on to, but he emptied himself. This is the kenosis or the incarnation of God, where by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. He became poor so that by Christ's poverty, the incarnation and the cross, we can become rich. Uh, on Christ becoming poor, Calvin says, we see what destitute and lack of all things awaited Christ right from his mother's womb. And we hear that he says of, of himself that the foxes have holes and the birds of the nests have uh, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's Luke nine fifty eight. Um, thus, he sanctified poverty in his own person, so that believers should no longer shrink from being fine with poverty, or shrink from, or uh, basically not being okay with giving away money. And by his poverty, he has enriched us, so that we should not find it hard to take from our abundance that we will expend it now on the behalf of the brethren. Or, Give it so that it makes others worshipers of God, as we've said before. So that by his poverty, we might become rich. Jesus' incarnation illustrates for us the grace, the theme of chapters 8 and 9, the grace that's expressed in love. And it's the willingness that we give up our own rights towards things so that we can meet the needs of others so that they will become worshipers of God. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we understand what you're calling us to. It's actually pretty simple. So bountifully. Be willing to do it with a cheerful heart. We know that you'll give us all that we need in order to do it. And so, God, I pray that we would, we would live this out uh, so that we can see people become worshipers of God. It's, it is an easy concept to understand, but for sometimes in our own hearts, we, we have trouble t trusting we have trouble trusting. So help us, Lord, trust you. Help us not struggle with this, but be excited, Lord, that we get to use these resources you've given us to financially bless other people and see them become worshipers of Jesus. Lord, I pray that also as we go into the Lord's Supper and we think on you being obedient to the point of death on the cross and that it has actually given us our righteousness that it would cause our hearts to be overjoyed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.